show me the social movement where there was no backlash, you know, I'll wait for an answer because there is none. There's no example of a social movement that didn't trigger backlash, you know, because these things feel very threatening when we start to change the structures of society. This is Matthew Bishop with Books Driving Change, where I talk to authors about their books, uh, which I think are relevant and inspirational for anyone who is looking to build back better as we come out of this uh, dreadful pandemic. Today, I'm talking with Megan Stone, who, with Rachel Vogelstein, has written a book called Awakening, hashtag Me Too and the Global Fight for Women's Rights, which is published by the Council for Foreign Relations, Council on Foreign Relations here in, uh, in New York. It's an extraordinary book because, not least because it shows, I think, in a way that nothing I've read before really has, the extent to which the Me Too movement is a global movement and actually one, and this is something I'll explore with Megan, one that really um, finds extraordinary commonalities uh, about the experience of women in society in countries that you might have thought you know, were very different in, in terms of the status of women and the experience of women and, and shows there to be a global um, women's movement revival going on. Um, but we'll turn to that in a moment. I wanted to start, Megan, by asking you in a sentence, you know, given our audience of people who are interested in public service, interested in getting involved in building back better, um, why should they read Awakening? Well, first of all, I want to say you don't need to read any book to get started in pursuing public service or trying to build back better. But if you were to read a book, and you read mine, which would be very generous. You would learn a lot from the women that we write about in the seven countries that we cover and how if you just apply some creativity and courage, it's really quite remarkable what can get done. So lots of lessons to be learned from these incredible women globally. Well, let's start um, with this point I made in the introductory remarks, which is, I mean, I mean, it would have been easy to follow the Me Too debate in the Western media and feel that it was principally about America and then maybe a number of other you know, rich countries going through a sort of a, a final stage of, 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 of women's advancement. But what you show in the book, it seems to me, is, is, is something quite profound, that there seems to be all over the world a quite common set of experiences, even in countries that on the face of it are quite different. Um, because there seems to be still a common problem that women everywhere are facing. They are. And, you know, the goal of the book was to really chronicle what has been the impact of this movement and how it's spread to over 100 countries and was really changing the way that women advocate in terms of sexual assault and sexual violence. But frankly, the, changing the way that women's rights are fought for and won across the world. And you do have some fairly chilling statistics in terms of the number of countries where, you know, basic rights are not even in the law. You know, people can be prevented, women can be prevented from working. Um, and certainly uh, a lot of courts are hostile to women bringing sexual harassment charges. There, there's still a culture of not believing women when they bring these mm -hmm. um, you know, stories of their assaults to light. What do you think is going on here? Why has this global movement taken off right now? Well, you're so right about everything that you point out about the legal changes that, that need to happen and that many women in 
a variety of countries are still waiting to see, you know, whether those are laws banning sexual harassment in the workplace or giving women, you know, the right to make basic choices, you know, in their lives about where to work or being able to travel without permission, inheritance rights, you name it. And so women have been fighting, you know, in incredible ways over the last several years. We feel like that what we saw was that digital organizing is what's made the huge difference in this movement and not in this starry-eyed, you know, panacea, magical way, in a way that it's just very practically a tool that's almost perfectly suited to this kind of organizing. You know, when you think about how many women have experienced, you know, being sexually harassed at work, uh, in many of the cases we saw sexually assaulted by powerful men, you know, men that are government officials, men that are religious leaders, men that have a lot of power to make sure that survivors keep quiet and are shamed into silence. You know, those men would never have been exposed if women weren't able to have a space where they could, at low cost, with more physical safety than they would experience in the real in the real world in real time, you know, be able to come online and say, you know, this this happened to me, and then other women say, wait a minute, I thought that was just me, me too. You know, the same official, this uh, same police officer, this same uh, religious leader was was who did this to me. And women are being able to, in a new way, join together and campaign in a way that they weren't able to. And we saw that the most effective work was actually happening where there was online organizing to do low cost, widespread uh, outreach, but then it was married up with real time presence. So like I think about women in the north of Nigeria, they started their own version of the Me Too movement called Ariwa Me Too. Ariwa just means north in in, in Hausa. Uh, and so, you know, the women in the north where Boko Haram is quite active, made the movement their own. You know, they were taking on their own local challenges within their community and really joining together and wound up moving that campaigning from online to, to being offline and going to parliaments and, you know, demanding that new legislation be passed and really going out in public. And, you know, they've ex experienced blowback. You know, I don't want to minimize any backlash, but I do believe that the backlash that these women are experiencing is frankly, you know, evidence of the success of the movement. You know, it's it, the powers that be don't feel threatened until they think there's actually something that could take some of that power away or, or change the structure that that supports them. And so I think that even the backlash is evidence that these women are succeeding. Yeah, but it does seem you know pretty clear from what you write that this is one case where the internet and, and the ability to use social media, the, the benefits have far outweighed the costs. You know, I know that's a, a, a broader debate generally as to, you know, the, the, the extent to which the social media revolution is really a, a revolutionary force in a good way or not. But certainly in this case, yeah. it, it does seem to have unearthed a sort of global connectivity and, and, and has been empowering in a, in a very different way, in a positive way. It has. You know, I think it's been incredibly positive for the women's movement globally because it's democratized the movement. You know, in the past, women's rights leaders often tended to be privileged women. You know, who are the heroines of women's rights that people usually look at? They're, they're by and large, you know, Western, white, global North women. And it's it's far, far overdue that, you know, women from a variety of backgrounds, religions, ethnicities, races, contexts, you know, are rightly seen as the leaders in their own liberation. And, you know, what the internet's done is allowed for a much broader movement and a much more diverse movement. 
in a way that's I, I believe is, is a big piece of why they're achieving real wins. And it's also allowed for two things to happen at the same time that seem like they could almost be counterintuitive. And that's the movement is transnational, but also hyper-localized, right? Because technology uh, has a low barrier to entry and a low cost, you know, women can trade inspiration across borders, use tactics that they see working in other countries. Like an example of this even is the rapist in your path, you know, performance protest piece that this Chilean, you know, women's rights collective uh, developed. And then it rapidly started getting, you know, reproduced everywhere from, you know, in front of Tunisia's parliament to in front of Harvey Weinstein's trial in New York. It was translated into many different languages and put into different contexts. Women started customizing the lyrics, you know, and went to places of power out front of courtrooms and legislative bodies to try to make this point in this creative way. And women can also transnationally encourage each other, you know, in victories and also when, you know, there's difficulty and you know that they're not alone. But it's also hyper-localized in that women are able to call out, you know, in their own way, whatever they think are priorities, whether those are specific officials that they need to name and want to see a credible investigation into for sexual assault or sexual harassment, they can go to this public space online, you know, if their workplace isn't taking their complaints seriously in a way that they believe they should be, you know, and they're able to really call for specific legislation or very specific changes that they need to say in their community, you know, in that way, the, the campaign's really open source in a way that's brought incredible power. I think the book does a great job of capturing those different global uh, stories. And, you know, you start with a elected a female official in Brazil who ends up being uh, killed and then um, but and you and you go to Tunisia you go to Pakistan you go actually in a way that I found quite remarkable to Sweden which is a country that I, I, I and I imagine many other people just imagine to be incredibly liberated and have tremendous equality of, of, of women and men but in fact as you show you know has a an establishment of male dominated that has rallied around to some extent, um, you know, leading male figures who've been accused of sexual harassment, um, and still now needs to go through another wave of reform if it's to remain a leading nation. It's exactly right. You know, we looked across globally, frankly, you know, digging into where Me Too had gone viral, where there had been specific wins. And we actually worked with Twitter at one point, and we found that it had spread between Twitter and then also looking at Facebook to over 100 countries, which is really remarkable. You know, if anybody had sat down, you know, in a campaign headquarters and said, let's go out to 100 countries, like, I don't even know how you would begin to build the strategy or find the resources to do such a thing. You know, and that's why the, the movement's been so powerful. It literally puts into the hands of local women leaders, many of whom didn't consider themselves leaders, frankly, until they started speaking up online and social media and other online spaces. It gives them the ability to, to mount the campaign that makes sense to them and the way that makes sense to them with the priorities that make sense to them. And frankly, that, that's something that's been missing from international development and global social change for a long time, right? That's criticism that comes from, you know, all kinds of people working in the global South to global North donors that has not been fully addressed, even begun, I would argue, to be addressed in a comprehensive way. That's really important. So it was actually vital for us to, to put together a collection of countries that showed that the movement was working across different contexts 
different socioeconomic realities, different communities, different colonial histories, uh, different stories of maybe conflict, different religions, different kinds of governments, everything from democracy to authoritarian regimes. And so Sweden was really important to include because we wanted to make the point that the need is also universal, that this is not an issue that the global North has cracked the code on and that, you know, we're going to teach these global South countries how women can be liberated. We're going to come give them this gift of, you know, white Western feminism, you know, riding in on a white horse. That That is not what it is about. It is really about women deciding for themselves in agency what they know needs to change, right? And even a place like Sweden, you know, needs systemic change, even after all the gains in terms of laws, and women's leadership, the problem is still pervasive. And you take this broad, you know, long, long historic sweep of the women's movement for, towards equality, and 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 you you believe we're now at a point where there's a new phase in that global historic movement. We do, we do, you know, because it used to take a couple of things. It used to take too long. <laughs> <laughs> to get some of these changes, right? You think about suffrage and, you know, women were sending telegrams and there were suffrage magazines and they were traveling by steamship and it was very difficult, you know, for women to gather, you know, but then you think about the modern women's movement, just think about the women's marches, you know, in 2017 in response to the election of this, you know, populist leader in the United States, Donald Trump, you know, those movements, those marches were organized, you know, in a matter of weeks and did not just happen, you know, in the United States. We write in the book even about, you know, in Pakistan, there was a series of Arat marches. Arat just means woman in Urdu. And, you know, women there in Pakistan throughout the country, even in some of the most restrictive places, were out marching. They had a platform of what they were asking for in terms of their rights. They actually took up the slogan, my body, my choice, which is really interesting because of course, you know, in the United States context that talks about access to abortion services, you know, and reproductive health services. But for those women, it really meant, you know, the right to refuse uh, sexual uh, harassment at the workplace, the right to not be sexually assaulted, the right uh, to also be able to work freely and to really have full rights in society. But it's really been profound to see how technology has changed the movement, not only through accelerating it, but also making sure that it is a broader, more diverse movement in a way that also radically changes what, what's being called for. You know, Was in it in Pakistan that you have the example, they also had a hashtag, which was something like, you know, heat your own food or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> So, thought, you know, it was a very yeah. basic point, but uh, yeah. We talked to uh, a few uh, incredible women in Pakistan, actually two uh, Shizas, one who, uh, Shiza Malik, who designed the posters and the street art, which is really interesting to see the role of, you know, art and expression and how we depict women, uh, you know, and she was talking about how that hashtag uh, went viral and it got men so upset. You know, people were, uh, the, the old uncles were on <laughs> on Pakistani TV debating this, you know, about this was, this is uncalled for. You know, and we talked to another woman, Shaza, who's a journalist there, who was talking about, you know, what the Arat March has been really pushing for. And it even got to the point that, you know, they've started their own women's political party in Pakistan. You know, and the organizers of that march have been able to make incredible progress in really speaking out, but also had extreme backlash. Even this past year, members of the march were forced to go into hiding 
because they put out this very progressive agenda where they were also marching with transgender women and talking about LGBT equality. And so, you know, this is really the kind of work that I think needs to have more attention paid to it. And I think really, frankly, you know, spins on its head, you know, this idea that women in the global South are are victims or not women of agency or not, um, you know, not needing of saving in the least, you know, and I think those are just very old uh, racial, you know, tropes that we really need to confront across the board in foreign policy and in international development. Now, most of the voices in the book, you know, are the the voices of the women on the ground of the countries that you feature. Your voice and, and that of Rachel, it, it, you know, doesn't come through other than as an enabling voice for these these other women's voices. But you do both tell your stories at the start as to why this matters to you, and your story. You know, it is is one of seeing your mother thrown out of a car by your father, and a lot of growing up in a situation where there was a lot of abuse of, of your mum by your dad. And tell, tell us a bit more about your story, and then later you obviously worked with Malala uh, for a number of years on her work. And there's another example of a of a, of a, a young woman abused for you know, nearly murdered for her. You know, position to campaign for education for girls. Tell us what, why, you, why you felt drawn to write this book now. Yeah, well, I'd say two things. First, the decision to kind of take ourselves out of the center of the book was very specific. You know, when we actually looked across what had been written already, you know, a lot of the books kind of take this, you know, I'm flying in, I'm on the ground, you know, I'm in this very dangerous place. It's like this kind of... Uh, dated and even offensive, I would argue, uh, kind of like swashbuckling approach to going to these countries where people are raising their families, you know, going to school, getting married, burying their loved ones, living their lives, you know, just like anyone else. And, you know, for us, it was actually quite important to kind of decenter ourselves as like these, you know, American experts that were coming in to prescribe, you know, what was happening or should happen. And so that was a big decision. And actually, it was the publisher that pushed us to even have an author's note <laughs> at the beginning, I was quite happy to remain silent. And um, that was something actually I used to always say I loved about working for Malala. I was always happiest, you know, carrying her speech for her and holding her purse as she walks into a summit because I truly believe and continue to believe, you know, it's far overdue for the world to hear from young women from places like Pakistan and not just for a few minutes, but at the center, you know, of global summits and important meetings at the UN and where real decisions get made that impact people's lives. I would say that way of looking at the world comes from being a survivor of abuse myself and just knowing what it feels like to be powerless, you know, to, to be in danger in places where you're supposed to feel safe and, and not, you know, being safe and, having to overcome things that were said to me and about me, about my worth as a woman, you know, that like the most important thing when I grew up would be uh, what man married me, you know, um, you know, in, I write in the book about how in my community growing up in small town, Virginia, when Geraldine Ferraro ran on the ticket to be vice president of the United States. And then when we had our first female Supreme Court justice in the 80s, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, that people in my community were very open in saying that women had no place to do those things. And, you know, I take all that into these spaces of just wanting to 
see women uplifted and, and not just uplifted or empowered. I think those words are kind of dangerous sometimes. <laughs> when I worked for Malala, I called them, uh, I called it hooray for girls and said it was very dangerous because, uh, you know, you would do an event with a world leader or some, some philanthropists and they'd be like, girls matter, girls are great, hooray for girls, you know, and meanwhile, weren't changing any policy, weren't changing funding, right? You know, any activist knows, uh, show me the money is, is very real, you know, until, until there's real funding and real policy change, it doesn't really mean much if someone's just delivering some talking points that agree with you. So you know, I think for me, it's always wanting to see justice, you know, wanting to see justice for girls and for women and really for all people. Um, but also in a space of grace, I talk in the book about my father passed away during the writing and I was with him and uh, made amends to him and, and, you know, I believe received his love in return and, you know, that we can also find a pathway to where appropriate uh, forgive, you know, and I think did that's he seek, did he seek your forgiveness or he wasn't, able to, he was so sick, um, but I, he didn't ask for it, but I, I came freely giving it um, because there's, there's something about having the gift of becoming whole in your own right. Right. And if, if you have the power to have agency and be your full self and don't use that, I believe for good and for restoration, uh, you're just repeating, <laughs> repeating the harm that was done to you, you know, and I, I really do believe that, uh, in grace, you know, and that there's a way, and we say this even in, in the book, when we talk about having redress for victims of sexual violence, you know, Toronto Burke herself, who founded the Me Too movement and is a survivor, uh, you know, incredible activist, talks about restorative justice. You know, there has to be a pathway for people to come back into society, you know, if there's true amends, if there's true recompense, you know, to, to come back or else we can't bring everyone with us to change and hopefully have unity, which is always dependent upon the most progress for everyone together if we can, right? So, you know, we say that that's not always the answer. If there's not justice in a country to begin with for women, we wouldn't want to skip over that to a sense of restoration. But, you know, there there is a place, I think, for that conversation that sometimes gets lost in like a very quick online debate about the Me Too movement. Yes, yeah, so you mentioned the redress that is needed. Um, and that's one of five R's that you you recommend that we need to focus on now if uh, this Me Too movement is to deliver the change that ideally it will will do. Can you just talk us through each of those five R's? Yeah, absolutely. We wanted to try to find some context or construct to, to make sense of this because it's such a big agenda, right? It's like, how do we further the legal, economic, political equality of women and you know, so for us, the five R's were redress for survivors, reform of the law, representation for women, resources for implementation, and then recalibration of social norms. So redress just means justice. And Toronto Burke herself has a survivor's agenda that she's put forward. And this is just really making sure that there's a functioning and balanced legal system, right? One that protects the rights of the accused and survivors together, right? When, when she says believe all women, when Tarana has urged that, believe all women just means believe credible allegations and have a credible investigation that we don't just dismiss out of hand when women come forward, not that we automatically assume guilt or innocence. And I think that's an important kind of due process distinction that often also gets missed in kind of a glib discussion of these issues. So we want to see a legal system that works and it should be free of discrimination. It should be free of stereotypes about women 
you know, and governments have a lot of work to do. They need to put legal protections against harassment and assault into place into every country. You know, and we're three years into the Me Too movement now, and an astounding 50 countries still have no prohibition on sexual harassment in the workplace. And, you know, as we all know, even if there is a law, it, it comes down to enforcement, right? And, you know, I even talked about that in my part of the book in my own family, that sometimes the police would come to my house and nothing ever got addressed, right? And, you know, I think we need to find ways to make sure that police officers that, you know, those who then in, in, enact these laws practically, right, um, make sure that they do their jobs, you know, and that that often can happen. There's a law in place. And, you know, when women try to go to report at a police station, they're dismissed, um, you know, not taken seriously. So we want to see that change, you know. And so building on that, we just want legal reform across the board. Right. We want to see rights and laws change so that women can have true gender equality, legal, economic, political equality, right? So moving beyond laws that address justice for sexual assault, we wanna see you know, broader protections that, that give women equal rights to men. And then representation is just what we all know, we don't see as many women <laughs> leading at senior levels. You know, and I think this comes up even in our workplaces, we understand that maybe there's a lot of women represented at lower levels of an organization, but once they get to the higher levels, it's still predominantly men. And that's, you know, that's the case in political leadership, business leadership, that has to change. And then resources, you know, to me, this is really just about how are global donors supporting these women that we write about in the book? And the answer is they're not. <laughs> they're simply not. Right now, less than one penny of every dollar of international aid goes to women's rights organizations, right? So less than one penny of every dollar for organizations working on the rights of half the population. You know, this is just egregious. It's not that hard to change, yet it hasn't. You know, there's some good models that we see. So, you know, in Canada, they've recently started up a mechanism that really prioritizes supporting local women leaders, you know, and putting together a good committee that represents those communities to make those decisions about who to fund. But we need to do more, you know, certainly here in the United States where I sit, <laughs> um, you know, USAID puts a lot of money through big contractors and, and not enough money through local women leaders. And these are the women who are going to be in the community uh, long term. You know, they are deeply committed. They, are, they deeply understand what the needs are and they deserve more investment. And we try to underline that throughout the book, frankly. And then for some of the countries I write about, particularly places like you know, Egypt, where we give a tremendous amount of military aid and other aid with, with very little conditionality, we got to change that, you know, and that's another way to use resources, I would argue, in a better way to benefit these women. And then lastly, just recalibration. And that just means, you know, in our personal lives, in our workplaces, recalibrating how we see gender and how, how the genders interact. And, you know, practically, that means things like how I raise my son, um, who I dedicate the book to, you know, I say, as he learns to be a new man. And I meant, you know, becoming a boy who is becoming a new man, you know, and becoming a man in a new way. And those are the conversations we all need to have and, and really pursue and really be open to. Yeah. So, I mean, reading the book as a man, and I hope many men do read the book, it's pr pretty depressing to see so many of the male responses to uh, the, the Me Too movement. You know, I think as I reflect on my own experience of the Me Too movement, I mean, it really, I think, led to many of the conversations that I had with, with friends who were women who 
you know, I was, it, it was, I think, shocking to me and to a lot of other men just how pervasive what we probably thought were more rare events really are. So I learned a lot um, during that phase of the Me Too movement. But reading your book now, I suppose one of the things, apart from the entrenched resistance to change that there is, I didn't get so much of a sense of how you see or what you're hearing about um, any positive stories about men changing their behavior. I mean, and actually, you know, has there been a shift, do you think, in, in male attitudes to, towards women's rights as a result of the Me Too movement? I think that we're in the middle of it. You know, it was a decision to write the book at this point. Um, at first, some of our esteemed colleagues were like, isn't it a little too, too soon to, to start talking about this? You know, and we wanted to make sure we were chronicling and documenting these wins that women were winning, you know, predominantly in the global South now, you know, before these stories weren't captured, which is what we see all the time in historic accountings, you know, it simply wasn't valued unfairly and unjustly. And we wanted to make sure that it was captured now um, to hopefully inform, you know, more analysis and more, uh, you know, storytelling moving forward about what happened in this particular moment. So these stories are part of seeing, you know, the, the leading edge of this women's rights movement kind of cycle that we're in right now. I would say, I do think it's starting to change, you know, men's perceptions, but, you know, social change is a long, long game, but we can also see tremendous change in generation to generation, you know, domestic violence used to be seen even in the United States and in the UK and other countries in Europe as well, you know, seen as a family matter, you know, as a private family matter, not seen as a crime, a physical assault, you know, plain and simple. And, tremendous changes have happened. You know, now if, if someone hears a male friend of theirs was physically assaulting their partner or spouse, you know, that would be by and large roundly contempt, you know, man to man. And that is a big change. That is a big change. You know, if you think about even the apartheid movement we write about in the book, you know, in South Africa, tremendous change, you know, in a generation, it's still unpacking that change, you know, to this day, but Things can shift, you know, gay marriage in the United States. That seems like an impossibility. And there were even, you know, well-documented debates within the gay rights community about was this pushing too hard, too fast? And was this the wrong strategy, you know, to go through the Supreme Court to try to win this right? Just go slower, maybe, and we have a better chance of winning. It turns out, you know, that was the breakthrough moment. So I think things are changing, you know, and I always think, too, of Malala and her father, Zia Dean. You know, look at what his love for her and what his rightly recognizing uh, her agency. You know, he always says he just didn't clip her wings, you know, is all he did. He didn't do anything special to help her fly. You know, he just didn't clip her wings as a girl and making that space for Malala to be who she truly was without being curtailed or shamed or told she needed to be less than, you know, was transformative for that family. And that's one generation, you know, so I believe tremendous change can happen. Um, I think there's always going to be backlash initially, you know, and when, when people say, oh, there's backlash, that means it's not succeeding. Do you risk it being even worse? You know, I would say, show me the social movement where there was no backlash, you know, I'll wait for an answer. Cause there is none. There's no example of a social movement that didn't trigger backlash, you know, because these things feel very threatening when we start to change the structures of society. And there's quite an interesting response that you have in the book to I think, one of the critiques that some men have made. Um, about you know women who've named their abusers in um, through social media rather than going through traditional legal processes and so forth. 
And, and you suggest actually, you know, that there is a due process issue. There is there are risks of injustice there, and you uh, you you actually raise the the possibility that maybe there could be some kind of truth and reconciliation commission approach to some of these issues in future. I mean, is that something that anyone's trying, or is that something that's that's still for for the distant future, perhaps? Yeah, I think it's it's part of this movement towards restorative justice, right? Which is, you know, how how do you bring how do you create a space where people can admit the harm that they've committed, take true responsibility and make amends and find a way to be restored back into being a member of the community? You know, and you know, if if the Truth and Justice Commission could do that under the circumstances that it was operating in, you know, surely we can find a way to do this work better in the context that we find ourselves in, you know, every day. I, I want to believe that that's, that that's possible. You know, and we say in the book, the reason women are naming men in these spaces is because the, the court system doesn't work for them. Wouldn't you do the same? I mean, why do unions strike? Because, you know, negotiations have broken down, you know, with the powers that be, you know, and women, if they don't have a chance you know, of securing justice. I think in Nigeria, I mean, there are only a handful of rape convictions that have happened in Nigeria's court systems since independence. I mean, it's a paltry amount of convictions, less than a hundred. And, you know, it's clearly the system's not working, you know, so women are going to go into these spaces and name their accusers. Are there some cases certainly where maybe somebody was falsely accused and that accuser had other malicious intent? Certainly, there are some cases of that, but the overwhelming majority of these cases are, by and large, you know, legitimate and women that have not been able to, you know, be able to pursue justice through any other mechanism. So they are going into those spaces because it's the only space they have. But we do believe that there should there should still be due process. You know, uh, everyone has a right to defend themselves, and there's a reason for that, and we support that fully. We just want women to have the chance to have a credible investigation when they come forward with allegations. So a couple of final questions. One is, you know, given the audience that this podcast has of people who are feeling called to public service, want to be involved in building back better, are there, are there any particular lessons for them about how to make positive change happen? Yeah. I mean, I would say one thing I would just say from my own experience and, and also from the women in the book is that, you know, please don't wait until you feel qualified. <laughs> um, you know, we say in the book that many of these women are accidental heroines and that, you know, when they posted online, they did not see themselves, you know, becoming part of leading a movement. You know, I think of women like Fakria Hashem in Northern Nigeria, you know, she just posted in solidarity to another woman survivor in Northern Nigeria and, you know, did not anticipate that she would then, you know, become an organizer in protests in front of parliaments and, you know, fighting and winning battles to pass legislation, uh, helping ensure that that men in, in political power were stepping down, you know, after having credible allegations of assaulting young women. Like, this was not the plan, you know, when she found herself there. So, you know, if you find yourself called to do this kind of work, I would hope that folks would just step into it because, you know, there's there's kind of this lie in uh, foreign policy and international development. You have to have a million degrees and all these credentials, you know, and I think it's overdue that we're starting to just really say out loud, you know, people are experts at their own 
experience and context. They have lived experience that really matters. So if you have lived experience on an issue and feel like you can do something, like just get moving. You know, you don't necessarily have to go to grad school. I I cheer you on if you did. Um, but you know, there's so many ways to do this work, and I hope that people will feel empowered to start and not think that they have to check a certain box or have a certain credential to begin. And if you read the book, there's many women in these pages that are far more powerful examples than I can even uh, begin to describe of, of that very thing that, that you can do this now. So perhaps to end, you could just, what, was there one of those accidental heroines, one story that perhaps more than any has inspired you and keeps coming back to you? as you go about talking about the book about and, and getting involved in the work of, of, uh, of this movement? Yeah. You know, I think of one woman, Mazen Hassan in, in Egypt, you know, and she is a lawyer and, you know, when the uprisings started happening in 2011 in, in Egypt and, you know, women were starting to get sexually assaulted by government forces, state supporting forces in to rear square and, you know, very much trying to force women out of public space, you know, by assaulting them. And she started trying to counsel those women, trying to support those women. Her organization, Nazra, took on an incredible amount of this work. You know, she was part of a group of women that were heavily involved in trying to write the new versions of Egypt's constitution after the uprisings in 2011. So here's a woman who's trying to help other women who are survivors of sexual assault, trying to both give them comfort and recovery, but then also fighting for them legally more and more in a court of law. Then she becomes part of, you know, the people literally casting the future of her country after this revolution. Then with Sisi coming into power, you know, and Egypt becoming more and more authoritarian under his, uh, you know, regrettable regime, you know, she finds herself branded an enemy of the state you know, and she's accused of spreading fake news. She literally has charges entered against her for the irresponsible liberation of women. Like this is literally a charge that's in a courtroom um, that she's still dealing with the case. She messaged me just, you know, two days ago asking for support because she was called in yet again to be harassed by the judge on her case, you know, and saying, you know, can you help shine a bright light on what's happening to me? She's on travel ban. Her resources have been frozen. Her bank accounts, her organization stores have been forced shut by the government. And yet she keeps speaking out and she keeps standing up and she's decided not to stay silent, you know? And so that's a long journey from where the work started at every level, you know, from helping survivors to trying to re- recraft the future of her country post-revolution to standing up globally and continuing to be a voice for women's rights. And so, you know, I don't think that when she started her work, she expected <laughs> to be doing all those things across the continuum, but she does them with so much integrity and perseverance in the face of challenges that would make almost anyone stop. So to me, she is one of the heroines of this book and of, of this work. Well, there are many others in your book besides her that are, are inspiring and doing important work and it's been great uh, to chat with you about this incredible book Megan and um, well, thank, you, thank you and good and good luck with it as you as you as you share the the, the, the stories in it um, this is awakening hashtag me too and the global fight for women's rights by uh, Rachel B. Fogelstein and my guest today Megan Stone. Megan, thank you. Thank you so much. 
This is Arabella Meyer, Editor-in-Chief of Driving Change. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please leave us a review and rate us. And if you'd like more, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about us, please visit us at drivingchange.org and follow us on social media at underscore driving change. Until the next time, this is Driving Change.